everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I've got another good show for you today. The baseball playoffs are underway this week, and I'm going to talk all about the matchups and more with Matt Musico, a writer for the Chin Music baseball blog. Show Me the Money is also back with your picks for week five of the NFL season. Be sure you're locked in to the end of the show for this week's two-minute drill, where I take a look back at the David Wright era for the Mets, which came to a premature end over the weekend. We get it all rolling with this week's opening tip, where I take a look at some of the big headlines from the NFL in week number four, right after this. Y'all ready for this? Welcome back to this week's opening tip. We're going to take a look at some of the big headlines from week four of the football season. Hard to believe the regular season's already a quarter of the way done. Unless you're a Redskins fan or a Panthers fan, your team's had a bye in week four for some dumb reason. But enough about that. It feels like just yesterday, we're all doing our fantasy football drafts. We're all sitting by the pool. We're all enjoying summer. But football season just flies by. Let's get into some storylines from week four. And I have to lead with the Jets. Look, heading into week four, almost every Jet fan I know would tell you that there was no way they're going to win this football game. The Jacksonville Jaguars are a superior football team to the Jets in every aspect. Everybody knows that. I know a Jaguars fan. I told them, look, your teams are going to get a very easy win this week. I did not expect it to be as easy as it was, to be honest, because the Jets looked like they had no interest in playing that football game. The offense was struggling. That's not a shock. The Jags have a great defense. They have a great pass rush. And the Jets don't have a great offensive line, which will mess a lot of things up. The Jet offensive line struggled as expected. They didn't run the ball enough. So that was a lot of pressure on Sam Darnold, who had to drop back and throw 34 times. 34 times against that defense. That's way too many for even Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, let alone a rookie quarterback. Darnold was not helped out by his game plan, which again was way too conservative in the first half. If I see another bubble screen to Quincy Enunwa or Bilal Powell, I will go crazy. Enunwa himself also had a bad game. He had a big drop down the middle that would have been a touchdown. Darnold barely missed Robbie Anderson for a 55-yard touchdown. They had a great play down the sideline to Chris Herndon, made an incredible catch. Of course, it got called back because Eric Tomlinson was holding on the line. The offense was bad. The defense was embarrassing. The Jaguars outgained the Jets 503 to 178 in terms of yardage. 503 to 178. The Jets just made Blake Bortles, who is, everybody knows, is an average quarterback. They made him look like Kurt Warner in his prime, throwing darts to Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt. The Jets made that Jaguar team look like the greatest show on turf. Blake Bortles went 29 of 38, 388 yards, two touchdowns. Now, this is not saying that Bortles had a masterful game. The Jets were not covering anybody. There were guys wide open every play. The touchdown to TJ Yellow was embarrassing because they took a dump off and ran 31 yards without anybody touching him. But the play of this game was in the third quarter. Jets are down 18-3. Dante Moncrief ran a go-route right by $72 million man, Tremaine Johnson, took it to the house. That touchdown says all you need to know about the Jets' game plan. The other takeaway I had from this game was the continual bad coaching out of Todd Bowles. He had very poor game management in this, in this contest, especially in the fourth quarter. Over 13 minutes left. Jets are down 25-3. They have 4th and 8 on the Jacksonville 20. Todd Bowles decides to kick the field goal. He kicked a field goal to make it 25-6. to six. Three points is absolutely useless at that point in the game. Because it's still a three-score game. They took the margin from 21-19. to, eight to 19. Whoopee. At that point in the game, against that defense, that far down the field, you need to be going for it. To make matters worse, Bulls doubled down the stupidity late in the game. They are down, that's point, 25-13, or 25-12, excuse me. They have fourth and six on their outside of the field. 
four and a half minutes left, and they punt the football. I don't care if you're playing the 85 Bears. You are not going to win the football game punting the ball away on fourth and six when you're down two scores in the fourth quarter. If they get a field goal, who cares? You need to go for it there. Punting the ball is playing scared, and the Jaguars just took it right down their throats and scored a touchdown to add insult to injury. When Bowles ordered the punt, I turned the game off. Simply put, Todd Bowles waved the white flag there. He made it very clear he did not believe his team could win that game. So therefore, I made it very clear that they did not deserve my attention for the last three, three and a half minutes of the game. I moved on. Let's move on as well to some of the other games of the day. Let's go to the Giants. They followed up their impressive win over the Texans with a brutal loss to the Saints. The offensive line struggled again. They gave up three sacks. Elon Manning was bad. He missed a lot of wide-open throws. Very ineffective game plan. The defense played pretty well, but at the same time, they were given a tall order to try and stop the Saints again and again and again and again. They held the Saints to four field goals in the first half. You give Drew Brees that many shots of the football, they will find ways to score points, and that's what ended up happening. Alvin Kamara took over the second half. That game was just over at that point because the Giants simply could not put enough points on the board. The Giants now head to Carolina next week. Panthers had a week off to get ready for them. They need a win to get back on track. All right, let's go around the league for a little bit. Let's go back to Thursday night to look at that showdown between the Rams and the Vikings. Now, I admit, I'm not a big Thursday night football guy, but I was locked in on that game. That was two great teams. Ended up turning into a game of Madden on rookie mode, no less. As far as the Rams are concerned, this game was the Jared Goff coming out party. Goff torched that elite Vikings defense, going 26 of 33 for 465 yards with five touchdowns. Unfortunately, for a lot of fantasy owners, Goff's probably on your bench for that because of the respect the Vikings D has nationally. But let me say one thing. If the Rams are going to be this good on both sides of the ball, they are the team to beat in the NFL right now. They have so much talent on both sides of the ball. Goff is coming to his own. The coach is a very good coach. I think they could easily get the Super Bowl out of the NFC if they keep this up. The other big takeaway from this game, what the hell happened to the Viking defense? Over the last three weeks, Minnesota has given up 29, 27, and 38 points. Last year, the Vikings gave up more than 20 points only four times all regular season. They just did that three weeks in a row. The Vikings now 1-2-1. They have 10 days to get ready for a huge game with the Eagles. And the way their D is playing... They need every one of those 10 days to get fixed. The Vikings now trail both the Packers and the Bears in the NFC North. The Packers made easy work of the Bills, which the Vikings could not do last week, routing them 22 to nothing. Josh Allen looked overwhelmed. The Bills line was horrendous, gave up seven sacks. Allen threw two picks. Packers go 2-1. and one. Not much more to say there. The Bears go to 3-1 and one after Mitchell Trubisky came the first Bears quarterback to throw for six touchdowns in the game in 50 years. The Bears not known for quarterback play. They had a quarterback throw for five touchdowns in 50 years, and Trubisky threw for six. The D put an end to Fitzmagic. They jumped out to a 35-3 lead as Tampa turned to Jameis Winston at halftime. Winston was not much better. He had a touchdown. He had two picks. The Bucs now have two weeks to try and figure out what they're going to do with their quarterbacks because they're on bye this week. Another team with an easy win, the New England Patriots. They badly exposed the Dolphins in a 38-7 route. The Pats traded that Dolphin defense in big spots. They went 10 for 15 on third down. So Dolphins simply could not get off the field. They outgamed Miami 449 to 172 in terms of yardage on the day. New England gets the Colts on a short week. And that's going to be a tough order for Indianapolis. But you know Tom Brady has never lost a Thursday game on just three days of rest. So remember this. On a short week, when both teams only have three days to get ready for the game, Tom Brady is 6-0. and Keep that in mind. You're getting ready for the game Thursday night. As far as the Colts are concerned, lost to the Texans overtime, and most of the attention is going to be focused on Frank Reich's decision to go for it on 4th and 4 from their own 43 with 27 seconds left in OT. Colts don't get it. Texans go on to kick the game-winning field goal, and the media goes nuts that Reich was crazy. You know what? I agree with Reich. You go for it. As an old Jets coach, Herm Edwards, used to say, 
You play to win the game. You don't play to tie the game. Going for it right there, while super risky, shows your players that you believe in them and that they can win the game for you. Frank Reich built that trust with his players. It didn't pay off this time, but it should down the line. Andrew Luck also looked great in this game. Led the Colts back from a 28-10 deficit. Got the game to overtime in the first place. But the Colts need to find a way to run the ball, man. Andrew Luck dropped back 62 times in this game. That is way too many for a guy who's been fragile. And they need to find a way to run the ball and support him. Texans can say the same thing. Sean Watts isn't brilliant. But he got sacked seven times. That line is horrendous. And the way Watson plays, he just opens himself up to getting hit a lot. The Texans cannot afford to have Deshaun Watson go down for an extended period of time if they have any hope of coming back this season. So right now, keeping him upright is their biggest concern. Let's go another shootout, this time in Atlanta. The Bengals edged the Falcons 37-36 on a last-minute touchdown from Andy Dalton to A.J. Green. The Bengals are now 3-1, but they have some injury issues. Tyler Eifert suffers a gruesome leg injury out for the season. John Ross also pulled a muscle, scoring a touchdown early in the game. We don't know how long he's out. The defense does get Vontez Burfick off suspension this week. That should help. They are in good position to make a run the AFC North. The Falcons. Many people's picks go Super Bowl preseason. They're down to 1-3. They've lost back-to-back games at home. Their defense, which has been destroyed by injuries, is not going to combine 80 points over the last two weeks. That's not going to cut in a brutal division. They're already in last place. They need a win next week against Pittsburgh to get their season back on track and avoid having to go down the drain. That game is huge for both teams because Pittsburgh dropped a 1-2-1 last night with a 26-14 loss to the Ravens. They went to Pittsburgh. The Ravens were up 14 before you even settle down with the chips in the remote. Pittsburgh tied at the half, but in the end, they could not make enough plays to overcome the Baltimore defense. The Steelers D did their job. They held the Ravens to field goal second half, but Pittsburgh needs to put points in on the board, and they could not. Ben was very average, missed some throws. The Ravens took Antonio Brown out of the football game. Now Pittsburgh's in a huge hole, trailing two 3-1 teams in the division and tied with the Browns for third place. That game with the Falcons is massive for both teams. The loser of that game may have their season be done before we even get to the middle of October. That's insane. Two more games I want to get to, beginning with the Eagles and the Titans. The Eagles lost in overtime to Tennessee, which is now 3-1, and one, has the AFC South lead thanks to that head-to-head win over the Jags back in Week 3. But I want to look at the Eagles for a second. The Eagles have been very sluggish over their first four games. They're 2-2, two and two, which is about right because they played a very average brand of football. But I don't think the Eagles are in a lot of trouble yet. Yes, the Super Bowl hangover is real. Yes, they have issues. But they have a lot of time to fix them. Carson Wentz is still working off the rust. He had a pretty good game yesterday. He should get better the further away he gets from the injury. The Eagles also play in a terrible NFC East division. The Redskins are 2-1 in first place. They're not world beaters. Eagles are second and 2-2. Two and two, tied with the Cowboys who needed to fight tooth and nail to get by the Lions yesterday. And they have the Giants in the bottom at 1-3. And they've been very inconsistent. There's plenty of runway left for the Eagles to right their ship. And I think they can easily do that. Right now, not the time to worry about them. Finally, did anybody see what happened to the Browns yesterday in the black hole? Cleveland's up 42-34 late in the game. Under two minutes left. They stop Oakland on fourth down, in their, deep in their own territory. They have a chance to ice the game of the first down. Carlos Hyde gets it. Game over, right? Wrong. The call goes to replay review. And I'm watching this on Red Zone. They had the Fox broadcast up. Dean Blandino, who's now the used to be the head officiating for the NFL, now works for Fox, was talking about how there was no clear evidence the call would be overturned and that Browns fans should relax. They'll be fine. Everything will be good. Then they reversed the call. I will not forget the look on Dean Blandino's face. He just stood there, his mouth wide open in shock for about 30 seconds, and was just stunned speechless. They had no business overturning that call. None. And in typical Browns fashion, Oakland goes right down the field, scores a touchdown, hits the two for good measure to tie the game, and they win in overtime. Now, did the Browns get screwed? Absolutely. 100% got screwed by the refs. But you know what? Cleveland had every chance to win this game on their own. 
If they stop the Raiders, which they had just done the previous series, we're not talking about this call. We're talking about the fact that they defense stood up to the challenge, got a win on the road for the first time in forever, and now they're two and one and one and right in the mix of the AFC North. Instead, we get Samuel Browns. And that will just about do it for week four in the National Football League. Up next, we're talking MLB playoffs with Matt Musico. That interview is coming up right after this. Brewers led 5-3 at one point. And there's Yelich, deep to right. And this one is gone! Christian Yelich has done it again! Are you kidding? Another one for Yelich! 6-5 Milwaukee! Get that guy some hardware! All right, and we're back. Fall is in the air. Everyone's busy looking for their pumpkin spice lattes, and the baseball playoffs are underway. Join me today to talk about the postseason matchups, all 10 teams. It's a guy who covers baseball for the Chin Music blog on the Sports Daily, Matt Musico. Matt, welcome. How are you? I'm good, Mike. How are you doing? Good. Before we dive into it, can you give everybody a bit of your background covering baseball? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, I've grown up being a diehard Mets fan, so I haven't had a whole lot of good things to cheer about over the years, but here and there and uh, played throughout my, uh, my years through college and whatnot. And I've been writing about baseball since uh, about 2011 or so about all different types, mostly about the Mets, but then really diving in the last few years about just baseball overall Uh, outside of the sports daily. You can find some of my old work at Yahoo sports and Bleacher Report and number fire as well. All right, cool. Let's start with the American league. Wildcard game is the one we expected for about, I'd say, the last six weeks. The A's at the Yankees. Who do you think has the edge in that game? You know, this is really difficult for me. Uh, I've been wrestling with this for a few days now. Just, I mean, you said it best. I mean, we've known about this for weeks now. But uh, for whatever reason, I don't know why. I feel like I'm leaning a little bit more towards the A's than the Yankees. I think just because it seems as if the Yankees still have a lot of unknowns with who's going to start the game. Uh, and they still could go with just like a bullpen kind of game and things like that. But it, it seems as if even though the Yankees came into this year with the bullpen being like one of their huge strengths, and I think it did recover after a little bit of a blip in the radar in the middle of the year, uh, I feel like the, the A's have more of a, an advantage with that. Uh, but this is a complete toss-up. I feel like they actually match up really, really well. And especially being at a launching pad like Yankee Stadium is going to make this very interesting because both these teams are pretty powerful. Yeah, I agree. I also think it's interesting that the A's basically have already hinted they're going to bullpen the game. I think I heard that Liam Hendricks is supposed to start, and then they're going to try and run through all the relievers, which is a good strength of theirs. And they have no pressure on them compared to the Yankees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the A's were like, I saw something on Twitter today that the A's and, and the Orioles both had the same uh, same record last year. They were like 77 and 85. And the Orioles ended up being 30 games worse, and the A's ended up being like 20 games better. So, I mean, you know, they're coming in with the, the lowest payroll in the league. They literally have no pressure on them. They're just coming in, and I think that's probably the best way to do it. Meanwhile, the Yankees have this pressure of getting to the World Series. And probably at least, like, it seems as if, like, they've had this kind of, like, stigma about them, at least among some fans, not all, uh, that, like, this year has been kind of a, a disappointment just because of how much better the Red Sox had been throughout the regular season. But, like, you know, they won 100 games. I think they're pretty good. Uh, but, you know, it's always that Yankees mindset. These are World Series or bust. So, yeah, they definitely have a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, whoever wins this game, they go on to face the Red Sox, who dominated the regular season, win 108 games, set the franchise record. But they, I feel like they have a lot of issues that could bite them in a short series. What's the biggest thing you think that's going to hold the Red Sox back? Oh, definitely the bullpen. I mean, that was, def- that was something – that probably needed to be addressed before the non-waiver and the waiver trade deadlines. And Dave Dombrowski didn't really do it, probably mostly because just the opportunity that he felt he needed to have wasn't necessarily there. But I certainly think that's going to end up being the issue with them moving forward in October. We've seen the last few years, especially with World Series winners, how important the bullpen is. We saw it with the Royals, who didn't have a great starting rotation, like a dominant starting rotation when they won in 2015. Uh, the same thing with the with the Astros last year. They did have a good starting rotation, but it was how A.J. Hinch used the bullpen to really get, navigate them through October in a lot of different difficult situations. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Alex Cora goes about using his bullpen, which has kind of struggled in certain parts here and there, over, especially over the last like couple months or so. 
but I think that's definitely their weakest their weakest link at this point in the year. Yeah, I think my big concern with them is just what they're actually going to get at Chris Sale because he's barely pitched since the end of July, and now they're asking him to basically go twice in a five-game series and be a dominant guy, which you don't know what he can do right now. Yeah, and that's a good point, too. There's there's two sides of that coin. I mean, I think the, the biggest knock about Chris Sale is that he's always kind of worn down towards the end of the year, and he ended up pitching pretty consistently last year and then kind of fizzled out in October. So hopefully the other end of the spectrum is going to work out for them. But, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, he's, he's, he's the guy that needs to set the tone for, these, for this team moving forward. And if he's not able to do it, then all the storylines are going to come out again, no matter how good Boston's been this past year, uh, that they just are having these recent pro- problems winning in October. And uh, he's got to set the tone and kind of put those imaginary storylines off to the side so they can just focus on what they need to do. All right, let's go on to the other series, the only actual series that's locked in right now, the Astros and the Indians, the match with the last two pennant winners in the American League. Who do you like in that series? I, I really like the Astros uh, because for a few different reasons. I mean, obviously, we know how bad the AL Central has been this year just on a overall basis. Uh, you know, I, I think I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure Cleveland was the only team that was over 500 in that division. Yeah, they were. So, you know, they didn't really have to get, like, challenged very much throughout the year for the most part. I mean, I think they have just about the same record as the Rays, and the Rays are already home watching the playoffs. And the Indians had been uh, – they have been locked into their playoff spot for, like, a couple weeks now at least. So they haven't really had to get challenged a whole lot, which also helps because they got to, like, set things up for October and whatnot. But the Astros kind of got pushed by the A's. You know, they've, they've – faced a lot better competition. I think they're just a better overall team. We can tell by uh, their, like their run differential is one of the best we've seen in recent memory, if not all time. So uh, I just think they're the much better complete team, and it seems like they're kind of starting to fire in all cylinders as they get ready for October. And they, they just did this last year, so they know exactly what needs to be done to get back to that the pinnacle of the mountain. I actually disagree with you. I actually think I'm going to take the Indians in that series because I like the fact that they have that dominant rotation that's going to be great in a short series. I think that Houston has issues with Correa being hurt, Springer banged up, and the pitching hasn't been great. I think the Indies actually could make a deep run because they're built for October. Yeah, I mean, again, this is another one that could kind of go either way. I think they're they're built very similarly, and I don't want to beat the dead horse with the bullpen, but I think the bullpen is going to be really important here too because I mean, we saw when the Indians went to the World Series, Tom Ford and Andrew Miller and their bullpen was for them, and that's kind of been a weak spot for them throughout the year, and it's gotten better since they made a couple of moves uh, uh, before the non-trade, non-waiver trade deadline. But still, Houston's bullpen overall has been much better throughout the year, especially in the second half. So uh, I think for for fear of sounding re- re- repetitive, I do think that's going to be another key for them, especially when you get to those like high-leverage late-game situations with these great offensive players. These, these two teams have great offensive units overall, so I think that's going to be fascinating to watch as well. All right, let's go on to the National League. I don't know about you. I feel like this league has no favor because, I mean, we have two one, game 163s today as we're recording on Monday. That's just crazy. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, everyone always roots for the chaos, but it, it seems like it almost never happens. And the fact that this is the first time we've ever had two game 163 tiebreakers in one year specifically, and just the fact that they're both for the actual their respective divisions and they're all already in the playoffs anyways i mean i feel like there it's definitely some pressure to get past the playing game but there's also that fallback option all right we still have at least another chance if we lose today which i think uh makes things a little bit of a different dynamic for this for today's game yeah yeah let's go to the one let's start the one team that's not playing today that's the braves we've seen them a lot as met fans they got in a figure yet yeah, clearly ahead of schedule everybody would say that because everybody thought there could be a rebuilding another year do you think that they have a chance to get out of the NL? You think they're just a year too early? Uh, out of the entire NL, I mean, I think I think they may be just a little bit too early, but they have the type of personality in the right situation where they could absolutely just kind of go right through. I mean, we talked about how the A's have no pressure on them. It's kind of like what the Mets did in 2015. They arrived a year early, and they came with this solid overall team based on their pitching, and they just kind of like went right through the, the NL to the World Series. So, I think the fact that they have these young guys like Albies and Acuna and, and other people like that, they have the, that mentality of like, no, we're not really too scared. We could totally get through all this. And like you said, there's no like real like favorite here. Like they're all a bunch of good teams, but you know, I don't think that like one of these has like a huge, huge 
advantage over another, at least just from looking at it from the totality of it all. So I think they have a chance to, but also having the, the injury to Dansby Swanson definitely kind of takes the wind out of their sails a little bit, I would feel like. Yeah, let's move on to the Cubs. I think on paper, I think we could agree, probably the deepest team in the National League, but I feel like something is just off with them, and they've been kind of playing down the like they're playing down below their potential down the stretch, and they're not, now they're in the playing game with the Brewers today. Like, what do you think is wrong with the Cubs specifically that they have to fix in order to get back to the World Series? I feel like they just need to kind of reset their minds a little bit. Uh, I mean, they've been having this consistent success, and I think it's kind of getting to that point where like there's just this added pressure of always needing to you know, advance deep into the playoffs like they have the past three years. Uh, I think these last three years they've made it to at least the NLCS each and every time. So there's now this expectation that they should just get to this point with this young core that they have, and now they're starting to mature a little bit. And this is the third year, and they've only gotten one, quote-unquote, only gotten one World Series out of it. You know, everyone just expects more than that. I think they just need to play a little bit looser. I think they're a little uptight. Yeah, it's crazy we've gotten to this point where, like, where the Cubs are expected to be World Series titles after they break the 108-year drought a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy what can happen in a short period of time, right? You erase an entire century worth of no expectations. All right, let's, they're playing the Brewers today. The Brewers, I think a lot of people left them for dead six weeks ago. They got hot down the stretch. Christian Yelich likely won the MVP with his performance and didn't help my fantasy team out early enough, but that's a whole other story. Lorenzo Kane had a great job, too. Do you think Milwaukee has enough pitching to get them deep into October? Because I feel like that's their big question mark. Well, you know, I think, I think they have enough. I mean, really, the, the question is here is their starting pitching because their bullpen is very, very good. Uh, and I think they have enough starting pitching to get through the lineup maybe like once or twice. And they have enough lengths in their bullpen and enough guys that Craig Council can trust to be able to patch the rest of the way. And that's really the whole point of October at this point. We've seen it many times with different uh, teams in the past that we've already discussed a couple minutes ago that, you know, it's not necessarily like getting like a Justin Verlander and having him go like seven, eight strong and then having somebody close the door. It's, it's about just kind of like surviving and advancing. It's almost like the NCAA tournament. Just do just enough to keep them in the ball game and then try and get those crucial situations and have them go your way uh, towards, like, the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. So I think they have enough in the sense that, like, it, they don't have that guy that can go deep in games consistently, like, like a Verlander or, like, a Kluber or, or somebody else, like a Sale if he's healthy. Uh, but if they can get to, like, the 4th or 5th inning, I think they have a, an opportunity to piece it together. Yeah, I wonder if they're going to regret not paying up and getting Wheeler off the Mets in, in July. I feel like they were the team that were talked about the most getting him. Yeah, I mean, they obviously really could have used one of those guys, but then at the same time, you see them go on this, this run towards like the last like month, six weeks of the season, and you know, they've been doing it pretty much all year. They haven't really had like a huge uh, valley in production and, and having like just gone a huge long losing streak. I mean, they, they had a couple here and there, but they were able to kind of like stop it and minimize it on the way. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting to watch them. That's a team like I'm kind of like subconsciously rooting for just because they haven't been there in a long time. They've never won a World Series. And it, it would be cool to watch them kind of advance and get deep into the postseason. And plus, they also gave us the, the, the biggest amount of uh, enjoyment over this past winter because they, they got Yelich and Kane in the same day in, in an offseason that really nothing happened, it seemed like. That was definitely really exciting for me on a personal standpoint. Yeah, I agree with that. That was definitely fun to watch. Let's quickly go into 160, the other 163 today the, between the two NLS teams, the Rockies and the Dodgers. Which one do you think is better set up for October right now? Uh, I think the Dodgers are just because they they were just there. Uh, I think they already crawled themselves out of this huge hole. Uh, they were like, what What was it? It was like 16 and 26 in the middle of May or something like that. It looked like they were left for dead, and they kind of like stormed back. Uh, I, always, I always question, even though the Rockies do have a good amount, a good crop of young pitchers, starting pitchers specifically, it, it's just hard for me to trust them. And especially with they spent all this money on the bullpen this past year to, to have to be this lockdown kind of unit. And it's pretty much been anything but for the most part of the year, at least. So uh, it's kind of just hard for me to, to trust them on that sense. Uh, and especially since a lot of these guys haven't really – been through it at all and, and they went there last year yes but they just made it to the wild card game and that was it okay let's make them world series picks who do you have getting to the world series today 
Oh, boy. We know I'm going to go on my favorites that I've been talking about here. I'm going to go Houston and Milwaukee. Interesting. I'm going to take Milwaukee as well. I thought they're the hottest team right now, and we've seen the hot team get hot, get in, and just go on the run. I'm going to take them against the Indians. I feel like the Indian pitching, I feel like they're just going to surprise everybody in the AL and get there. I mean, they're all good picks. (laughs) All these these teams are really good, especially in the AL. It's like you can't really pick a bad team here. You know, they're all so good. Uh, I mean, it's not as if the NL teams are bad, but like when you think about, you know, there's a 300 win teams in this bracket of five, five teams. It's just crazy to think about. Yeah, it's kind of like the Eastern Western Conference split in the NBA where all the heavy teams are in the West. Then you have a couple of good teams in the East that are going to get there, probably going to have trouble in the, in the actual finals. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. All right, before we go, let, let's break, let's take it to the, dive into the Mets for a little bit. Number one, Jeff Wilpon yesterday said a bunch of weird stuff basically threw Sandy under the bus for the team's lack of spending on the analytics. What was your big takeaway from what Jeff said yesterday? Well, this is like nothing new. This is Unfortunately, this is like the Mets status quo for like the past like few years. It's so frustrating to hear this kind of stuff. And it's like, you know, clearly, and I think he kind of basically said it yesterday too, like whoever they end up hiring to take Sandy's place is going to eventually have to just funnel all their recommendations and decisions through Jeff Wilpon anyway. So it's not as if Sandy just had free reign to do whatever he wanted. I feel like if he did, things would be maybe a little bit different. Uh, everything, has to, everything has to flow through Jeff Wilpon and through ownership, which, yes, you do have to – there's some sort of, like, cadence to that and, and, like, a chain of command here that you have to throw things out there for them to approve and whatnot. But I, I think they have too much of a say in the actual day-to-day baseball operations for people who really don't know baseball that well. Uh, so they need to just like actually trust the people that they hire. So I'm interested to see, A, who's actually going to be interested to be in this kind of organizational culture that they've formed in the front office, and B, you know, what exactly they're going to be able to do. Because it seemed like every year with Sandy and his group, at the beginning of the year, they're like, oh, we're going to be super – well, at the beginning of the winter, rather. We're going to be really aggressive with what's going on. And then as things go on, he starts to, like, quell expectations here and there. And then they kind of, like, do this halfway thing where they bring on some veterans and they think they have a chance. And then it blows up in their face. And then it's kind of like a rinse-repeat thing. So I'm not really surprised about what he said. It's, it's more aggravating just because I feel like I've heard it ten times already. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. I also feel like it's just despicable the fact that he actually had the stones to go out on an NFL Sunday when no one was watching and basically dump the entire te- organization's problems on a te- on a man who's fighting cancer. Yeah, yeah. So and and like it's it's so despicable. You that was a perfect word for it. But it's like, what else do we expect from this guy at this point? It's like every time I feel like he can't do anything more stupid or ridiculous or disrespectful, it seems like he does it. Yeah, let's move on to some more more positive things. I feel like I've talked about Jeff all day, but I don't think anybody wants to hear that. So, <laughs> All right, Jacob DeGrom. I feel like it's a lock that he's going to get the Cy Young. Do you think he should get MVP votes? Yeah, I absolutely think he should get MVP votes. I, you know, I think everyone's definition of MVP is different, and it's a little bit of a tougher case because you see, like, the Mets record in DeGrom starts over this year, but it's like, you know – it's hard to fault him for what happened. You can't fault him for what happened. He literally, of his 32 starts, he allowed more than three runs once, which is just absolutely obscene. Uh, like, he's clearly, I think, in today's today's world, especially with some of the voters, like, the MVP goes to the best player. And I think definitely he has been the best player in the league uh, outside of maybe, like, a Yelich. So, I mean, I would be shocked if he doesn't end up in, like, I would say, like, the top five. I would be really surprised. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Second point, over the weekend, the day Wright era ended. Mets fans said goodbye to their captain. What did Wright mean to you as a Mets fan? Uh, well, I mean, I, I could give you this example. My, my firstborn's middle name is Wright, and there's <laughs> a reason for that. Um, I mean, he, he when he debuted, I think I was a junior in high school. So, like, I, I mean, I had followed the Mets before then, but uh, – like, ever since, like, you know, I went into my, I guess, like, young adult life and then adult life, I mean, he's been the one constant. And, like, it seems as if the Mets have almost always been a circus to some degree. And he was the one constant, like, higher standard. And I think pretty much everyone had that same opinion of him. And uh, it was really sad that everything had to kind of end the way that it did. And he said himself, you know, he's at peace with the um, with the work that he put in the 
give himself a shot to get back and obviously not at peace with the result, which I completely understand. And uh, But I think he also gets that pretty much no ball player gets to end, end things, end their career on their own terms. And I think this is the closest, the closest opportunity he had to be able to do that. And I'm just really glad that for once uh, it seemed like the Mets actually – you know, put their money where their mouth was, for, for lack of a better term, even though that probably applies here too, uh, and really kind of rolled out the red carpet for clearly the, the best player this franchise has ever had because, you know, everyone knows the player, everyone knows the person, and he really deserved it. And uh, I felt like it was dusty in my house all weekend. Every time I saw him, I kind of teared up a little bit. Well said. I know you have to run, but before you go, do you want everyone to know some of the stuff you're up to and how to follow you on social media? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. We can talk about playoff baseball, commiserate about the Mets, whatever you'd like, uh, at mmusico8. So it's just uh, M-M-U-S-I-C-O and the number 8 on Twitter. And again, you write for the Chin Music blog on the Sports Daily? Yes, Chin Music blog on the Sports Daily, and Sports Daily has a collection of over 100 different uh, independently owned blogs as well. So you can get stuff from me about uh, MLB and just the Mets in general and other types of teams, but then any other sports you can think of, we have there. Yeah, I contribute to the Mets site over there. Definitely check that out. Matt, thanks for the time. All right, no problem, Mike. My pleasure. All right, that was baseball blogger Matt Musico with a breakdown of the playoffs, which begin this week. You can catch all the action on ESPN, TBS, Fox, Fox Sports 1, and MLB Network. Up next, week five of Show Me the Money, which is coming up right after this. Show me the money. All right, it's time to show me the money for week number five. Joining me this week to make some picks is a guy who I spoke to way back in June after the NBA draft, and that's Jack Clark. Jack, welcome back. How are you? Good, Mike. How you doing? Good to talk to you again. Absolutely. Before we get started, Jack, what kind of fan are you? I am a fan of the New York Jets in the NFL. How did that happen? I've been a fan of the Jets, the Mets, the Islanders, the Knicks uh, since I grew up. Since my dad baptized me into that, I've been a fan ever since I grew up. Back when I used to play football in the day, I used to idolized Curtis Martin. I wasn't a running back for long, but he was my favorite player from the get-go, and I've just been a fan through the tough years and through the couple of good years we've had. Yeah, now it looks like we're in the midst of another tough year. That game against Jacksonville Sunday, oh boy. Yeah, that was a tough one. Obviously, a lot of talk going on now after the game and after all the games that we've lost so far. I know the, the big concern is Bulls, and I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit, but it was a it was an ugly game. I'm hoping for a better one as we we got three at home now in a row. So I'm hoping for better results. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Bowles because I feel like now the tide's starting to turn against him. There's still some people who support him, like Manish Mehta still does, but like I feel like now the secret's getting out that like he's not that good a coach. His game match is very questionable and they make the same mistakes year after year after year. It just it's just mind boggling. It is, and I hate to be on the same side as Manish Mehta, but I am still supporting Bulls. Actually, I I think that, and what it is, it always is the same situation with New York fans, that there's the overreaction. The way I see it, I'm sort of sitting back, and I watch, and I understand that this is, a, at best, an 8-8 eight eight team. I think the, the, the peak of this team is 9-7. and seven. And even that is, I think, unrealistic. So for the people that are calling for Bull's head, I think a lot of it is just a recent, what they're seeing recently. And I'm not saying that his track record as a coach, like you said, he has had his issues. But this is an 8-18, eight eight so why? I don't see why he should be fired during the middle of the season at 1-3. and three. For what? Are we going to bring in a new coach and he's going to get us to that 8-8 eight eight mark that everyone wants? No, that, to me, is the part where I want to give him till the end of the season, no matter what. Yeah, I think he'll get to the end of the season. My issue is just the fact that he's 11-26, and 26, I believe, since they beat the Patriots in Week 16 of the 2015 season. And they, it's, he's gonna be, they're not, assuming they don't make the playoffs this year, 
That's four years in a row that he's not made the playoffs, and I find it hard to believe he'd get a fifth. I agree. I think, though, when you look at the four years of the teams he's had, that the team last year was never even expected. Obviously, for Jets fans, we knew the team was going to perform better than what the outside the outsiders thought. People didn't give them a chance to win a game. That team was much, much better, played much better than anyone had expected other than Jet fans. You look at the year where they haven't made, you said they haven't made the playoffs in the four years. The one year with Fitzpatrick was when you thought maybe they were going to make season, uh, the playoffs. It came down to the last game of the season. They lost. That one was obviously heartbreaking. But, again, he hasn't had much with the, the, the team, the roster itself, where you would think that we're going to make the playoffs. So now when you look at what we have from the draft in Darnold, moving forward, this team seems to have a very good outlook especially with the money we have to spend in the upcoming offseason. So you would think that the window really opens up next year. And then, obviously, that's why I think that I want to see what happens for the rest of the season with Bowles. If he continues the trend of the terrible game management, the questionable decisions, and sometimes even his attitude where it's how it's portrayed to us, obviously you hear a lot about the players. They like him. They seem to like him, which I think is a positive. But all the other things that we see that are bad, if those continue, I don't see how we can keep them. Yeah, I agree with that. Before we we could go on with bowls all day, but let's take a look quick look ahead. They played the Broncos on Sunday. Denver blew a twenty three thirteen lead in the fourth quarter to the Chiefs on Monday night, lost that game. How do you think the Jets gonna handle that team coming in off a loss? I mean both teams coming off a loss. At least the Jets will be home. I like that. Obviously we've had a tough start to the season, the three games in 11 days, and then having to go to Jacksonville to play a really, really tough defense. Um, I think that the Jets are going to, I actually think we're going to win this game. Case Keenum doesn't scare me. I just think that the one the one thing that, or the couple things that scare me are the weapons they have on offense, their running backs seem to be coming into their own. And Case Keenum shouldn't have to do too much he's not going to have too much pressure because we've seen and we've seen the Jets have not pressured quarterbacks so defensively I'm a little worried about that I think that they just really have to dot the I's cross the T's defensively and let the offense work there's got to be some sort of game plan set for Darnold and then the backup game plan for when things start going wrong that's another thing that seems to happen is things start going wrong and there's not adjustments made at halftime. It seems that they're just throwing Darnold into the fire and keeping the same game plan. And when it's not working, they're not switching off of it or making adjustments. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how these two teams play on Sunday. Let's get to the picks and reset where we are in the Just End the Suffering pick challenge. My friend Will Smith was here last week for the challengers. He went 2-0-1. He got the rare push with the Vikings getting seven in L.A. He won with the Packers, minus nine and a half, and the Pats, minus six and a half, both of whom won in routes. I went two and one, won easily with the Bears, laying three, blowing out the Bucks. And the Raiders covered the two and a half with their OT win over the Browns. I'd like to thank the referees for the assist on that one. <laughs> I was wrong on the Chargers, who barely got by C.J. Beathard and the Niners, failing to cover the nine and a half. On the year, the challengers are now eight, three, and one. I am five and seven, trending back in the right direction, but I still have some work to do. Jackson, since you are the guest, you can pick first. Awesome. I'll preface it with the fact that I'm not much of a betting man, in the sense that I don't bet on games. I like daily fantasy, fantasy football, and such. But I will try and keep the positive record for the challengers going. My first pick is the Lions at home against Green Bay plus one. So the way I see it is that division games are always a battle, and you know these two teams, they hate each other, but I think that they love to play each other. I give the Lions the edge at home. I think that as a team they are an enigma, and we've seen it. They, you don't know what you're going to get. A terrible loss to open the season, prime time against the Jets. Uh, 
a terrible performance last week against the Cowboys. They beat their only win against the Patriots, so it just goes to show you really don't know what you're going to get. But for me, the Packers are so banged up on offense. Cobb isn't going to play. Geronimo Allison is still up in the air. They still have Rodgers, but I even think that with Rodgers banged up, you can't even expect too much from him. The Lions have a good pass rush. I think that they can move him out of the pocket, fluster him enough. Carry on, carry on has emerged as a really good running back for them. I think they're still trying to figure that out. We saw Patricia say he kind of wants to go with the hot hand. So with that pick, I'm hoping that carry on Johnson gets going and he's the hot hand. And Stafford career versus the Packers, 30 touchdowns, 19 interceptions. Again, he hates them. He loves to play them, though, I think. And at home, I think Detroit is the pick. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting game. I also think the fact that the Packers struggle against the run is going to be huge because Detroit has made it clear they want to try and run the football if they can. And I feel like they're going to just try and run the ball as much as possible and keep Rodgers off the field. I agree. And I think you look at last week, Green Bay against Buffalo, they weren't, I mean, when were they really challenged? Josh Allen threw that one terrible interception and the game was over right after that when he rolled to the right and they had a field goal and he threw an interception. But I, I like Detroit. All right. Where are you going with your next pick? I'm going with the Titans minus three and a half. In Buffalo. In Buffalo. So, Mariota, I like. I like him as a player. He's really hit or miss, I think, but he looks to be healthy again. They've had a really weird season with Mariota being not healthy for the second and third weeks. The first week was that seven-hour lightning delay debacle against the Dolphins. Mariota seemed to come into his own a little bit more last week, seemed a little more healthy. Corey Davis seems to be emerging as a star there. They got rid of Rashard Matthews, and now that should open up more opportunities for Taewon Taylor. He works out of the slot. Um, Tennessee, they got a really, they got a good defense. I think a little bit of an underrated defense, actually. And Josh Allen hasn't shown me anything that makes me think that they will win this game or even compete. Yeah, the Bills early only had that one good game where they just shocked the Vikings. But other than that, they've been pretty bad. Right, I agree. And, they, and at home, obviously, they play much better, um, and they'll have the fans behind them, but I still stick with Tennessee. All right, and where are you going with your third pick? Final pick, I think this one's a little out there, but I'm actually going Minnesota as the underdog, plus three at Philadelphia. So, obviously, they're coming off a really tough game last week, and it was Thursday night against the Rams. They're now have a lot of rest to get ready for this game. Eagles also coming off of a tough loss. No team wants to lose two in a row, so I think it'll be a real hard-fought game. Um, it does still seem to me like the Eagles are trying to find themselves with Wentz. You haven't really seen him put up that the performance that he was putting, in, putting up week in, week out last year. Um, and I think a lot of people are forgetting how good Minnesota's defense can be because, like you said, you saw the the game, the loss against Buffalo, and now last week getting all the points put up on them by that Rams offense, which is going to do that to any defense. I, I, I think that that's the best offense in the league, easily hands down. You can't argue. But I think that a lot of people are forgetting how good that Minnesota defense is, and they're missing Everson Griffin still. The injuries to uh, injury to Xavier Rhodes scares me, but I think he should be clear for that game. Um, so I think you'll see him a lot. He moves around a lot, so he should be able to stop Alshon, who just came back. Um, Dalvin Cook's also injured, but I think they said he's expected to play. And Kirk Cousins has played the Eagles his entire career, so I think that he's familiar with them, the defensive schemes, what to expect from a team like that. So I like Minnesota to... Minnesota plus three in that game. Yeah, that's a very reasonable pick, especially considering the Eagles have been very sluggish all season, and like they feel like they definitely have that Super Bowl hangover. Yeah, I I think so, obviously. And I just think that the thing that scares me and I, why I think the pick might be out there a little is because I feel like any week Carson Wentz can get it going and have that offense scoring on every possession. Yeah, that's certainly a risk, but picking games is a risk in general. With that being said, 
We're going to my picks now. Pick number one, I'm going to take the Cincinnati Bengals at home, laying six and a half against the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins are three and one. They were exposed on Sunday in New England. I do not think they're a good football team. Their O-line's a mess. They have three players on IR, including two starters. The Bengals are a very good defensive front that should get better now that Burfecht's off suspension. And Cincinnati's at home with a lot of weapons in the passing game. Andy Dalton is clicking. I think the Bengals can win that game by double digits. I agree. Saw them with that real good win against the Falcons, who are so banged up defensively. Um, like you said, the the weapons they have on offense and AJ Green, obviously a consistent um, target for Andy Dalton, and he's consistently good. Tyler Boyd emerging. Um, the one thing that scares me about that game, and I think it is a good pick, but it's just that what we've seen from the Dolphins is that they are so reliant on the big play that they scare me. That any any week they could all of a sudden have everything going on offense and just hit on those big plays every single week like they were doing two weeks ago. But in Cincinnati, I think it's a good pick. Yeah, I agree. It's going to be a very interesting game. Pick number two, I don't normally like to go to the Monday night game, but I'm going to this week. I'm taking the Saints, laying six and a half at home on Monday against the Redskins. The Saints D improved against the Giants last week. They had a cover two most of the day. EY had a tough time finding anything open against them. They're a much better offensive team at home. They're getting Mark Ingram back off suspension, held the running game. Drew Brees is going after history. He needs just 201 more yards to pass Peyton Manning for the most passing yardage in league history. And be honest, I just don't trust the Redskins. I have no idea what they are. They got they killed the Cardinals week one. The Cardinals are nobody's uh, definition of a superstar team. The Colts went in there and beat them in their building week two. And then week three, they beat the Packers at home. I just don't know what kind of team this is, but I feel confident that the Saints are one of the better teams in the league and will handle business at home. Yeah, prime time for the Saints. Like you said, I the prime time games scare me. You never know what could happen. But the Saints offensively are have already come into their own, and now, like you said, they get Mark Ingram back. I think that they give him a heavy workload out of the backfield. I don't think that Kamara is going to get much action running the ball. I think you're going to see him lining up as a wide receiver, uh, catching passes out of the backfield. He's going to do it all on the passing side of things for the running backs. Ingram's going to do it all on the running side for the running backs. I actually think that this is a double-digit point win for them, too, like you said. Yeah, plus the Redskins are dreadful on Monday night. I believe they've lost something like eight or nine in a row on Monday night. Not a good number for them. No. And pick number three, I'm going with a road dog. I'm taking the Arizona Cardinals, getting four points in San Francisco. The Cardinals, yes, they're the only team in the league without a win right now. They've been much better the last two weeks. They've lost by a combined five points to the Bears and Seahawks. They go on the road against a 49er team that's already down Garoppolo. They have a ton of injuries on offense. Marquise Goodwin may not play. Dante Pettis is out. Three linemen all have various issues. The D is already giving up 29.5 points a game. And Richard Sherman is probably going to be out again. C.J. Beathard looked good last week. I'll give him that. But I don't think they can blow Arizona out. Arizona getting four is a nice number in that game. Plus, I think they might win the game outright. So I'm going to take Arizona with the four very happily. I like that. I like your confidence in it. It does scare me, that game. Obviously, I think anytime you're going to take a winless team, and especially a team like Arizona, it's scary. Um, I think that, like we just kind of mentioned it briefly before, San Francisco did look real good against, not real good, but they looked good against the Chargers, a team that should have blown them out of the water. They stuck with them. They got a defensive touchdown, which definitely helped early on. Um but I think you're right about Arizona being kind of better than the record shows. On paper, that offense isn't so bad. It seems like Rosen has found his guy in Chad Williams early on. We'll see. We'll see how long that lasts. Um, see how long it takes for Christian Kirk to get involved. Larry Fitz has been a question mark all season long. And obviously, they have one of the best running backs in the league in David Johnson. So, again, I like the confidence in it. I would stay away personally. Okay, let's reset the picks real quick. Jack has gone with the Lions, plus one, hosting the Packers. The Titans, minus three and a half in Buffalo. 
and Minnesota plus three in Philadelphia. I have gone with the Bengals, minus six and a half, hosting Miami. The Saints, minus six and a half on Monday night, hosting the Redskins. Arizona, plus four in San Francisco. Those are your picks for week number five in Show Me the Money. Jack, thanks for stopping by. No problem, Mike. It was a pleasure. Hey, before you go, I know you're a big Met fan. you have any thoughts on the David Wright era coming to an end last weekend? Yeah, I mean, I have to... I, I assume I share the same sentiment as all the other Mets fans who have had the luxury of growing up with a player like David Wright, the captain. Um, I actually had the chance to go to the game. Thankfully, uh, you offered me the tickets. Unfortunately, I couldn't go, um, but I was able to watch it after I had gotten off work. And I thought that it was real nice what they did for him. I obviously wish that he had gotten a chance to even just get a single but um, he's everything you want in a franchise player. Everything that he did was positive for the team. He was a good guy on the field, a good guy off the field. He did everything you ever asked of him. It's sad to see him, his career come to such a quick ending. Obviously, it's something that he didn't envision. No one really envisioned as a fan. Um, I'm glad that he got to play in that World Series in 2015. Obviously, it didn't work out the way we wanted it to, but I don't think you can really say enough about the guy. He was just the best the best player that our generation has seen in a Mets uniform. Well said. Before you go, can everyone know some of the stuff you're up to and how to follow you on social media? Yeah, so um, my social media, I'm not so active on Twitter right now but my Instagram and Twitter have different handles actually my Instagram is at I'm Jack Clark so I am Jack Clark and my Twitter is at Jack T Clark so you can follow me on there I'm not very active right now but obviously if you enjoy what you hear on the podcast I would obviously appreciate hearing some feedback and it'll be nice to chat with anyone all right thanks jack no problem mike that was jack clark with your week five picks for show me the money up next this week's two-minute drill where i offer my thoughts on the end of the david wright era I truly bleed orange and blue. The love and the support and the respect from inside and outside the organization has meant the world to me. You'll never have any idea how much it means to me. Welcome back to this week's two-minute drill. As a listener of the podcast know, I'm a big Mets fan. So last Saturday was a sad day. David Wright, the Mets captain, and without a doubt, the best third baseman in the franchise history, played his final game on Saturday in front of a sellout crowd at City Field. I was there. I happened to be in front of a TV when they had the press conference a couple of weeks ago. They announced that David Wright's final game would be September 29th. Right as they said those words, I got on my phone, got on StubHub, snagged two tickets before the secondary market surge, and the price exploded. So I got in on a good deal, was there with my cousin, watched the game. Now, I've been at City Field twice in the playoffs. I was there in 2015, NLDS Game 4. When they came home, lost to Kershaw, and Murphy started the home run streak. I was there for the wild card game in 16 when the building was jumping the entire night until Familia got the home run to Connor Gillespie. That building was as loud, if not louder, than it was on either of those nights. Everybody was in their seats well before the first pitch. The building was ready to explode. David Wright was getting ovations just for running sprints and warm-ups. Every time they put him on the video board, the crowd went nuts. The Mets did a great job here with everything and made it a special night. Let Wright's daughter throw out the first pitch. Wright got to run the field by himself. They took him out in the middle of the, of the top of the fifth inning after he came out on the field to give him a chance for a nice standing ovation from the crowd. They gave him a chance after the game 
to come out, speak to the crowd again, and thank them for all their love and support over the years. There was not a dry eye in that building. And everyone stayed through that 13-inning clunker of a baseball game. Now, watching him go, to be honest, it's like closing out a significant chapter of my personal history and life as a Mets fan. I became a fan in the late 90s, right around that run where they started going into the playoffs. I, I was at the last game of the regular season in 99 when they got into the playing game with the Reds, won that, and went on from there. Now, my first big, big favorite player as a Mets fan was Mike Piazza, but he was never really a true 100% born and bred Met because he started his career at the Dodgers, finished it out in Oakland and San Diego. Wright was the first real player that I saw come up from beginning of his career and stay till the end of his career. That's no small thing watching David Wright play his entire career at the Mets. That just does not happen for this franchise. This is not the Yankees where you have Bernie Bernie Williams, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, Mickey Mantle, Joe DiMaggio, Derek Jeter. I can the list goes on and on and on. You don't have that with the Mets. The Mets' great players never finished with the Mets. Tom Seaver was traded away in probably one of the worst decisions in franchise history. Daryl Strawberry and Jose Reyes left as free agents. Dwight Gooden ended his own Met career of drug use. Wright is up there with Ed Cranepool as the only two guys who played for the Mets throughout their entire careers, but Wright was a far better player than Cranepool. Wright is the Mets franchise leader in hits, runs, doubles, RBIs, extra base hits, and war. He's third in batting average. He finished 10 homers behind Daryl Strawberry for the second most in Mets history and second in games behind Cranepool. It's an impressive career, especially since he essentially lost four years at the end there due to injury. If Wright stays healthy and plays at the pace he started his career, he's a borderline Hall of Famer. More than anything, I love David Wright for how much he actually cared about being on the Mets. He grew up a Mets fan in Virginia. Since their Triple A team at the time, Norfolk was based there. Everyone at this point mentions the contract. The eight-year, $138 million deal he signed after 2012 that became an albatross of the team. That contract did kill the franchise after spinosis, but people forget there was a very good chance that Wright could leave in free agency. Wright's contract was up after 2013. He was only 30 years old when he signed that deal. At that point, he was a six-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover. He just hit 306 with 41 doubles, 21 homers, 93 RBIs, and 883 OPS. The Mets were an absolute dumpster fire in the middle of their never-ending rebuild. There are already rumors that the Yankees and the Phillies were backing up the truck, getting ready to offer Wright huge multi-hundred million dollar contracts. If Wright got there, there's a good chance he's going to leave. But he decided not to. He signed an extension despite knowing that the Mets were not going to contend for a couple of years due to his desire to be with this team and guide them back to the top. It hurt a lot in 2015 when they started to win right after he got hurt. But it was nice to see him come back and be a part of that run down the stretch. A lot of my good memories from Wright are from the 2015 team. Whereas that second deck homer in Philly after he came back, that windmill fist pump in Washington after he scored that big run on Labor Day to help the Mets pass the Nationals in the standings for good. The hit in game one of the DS against Pedro Baez to give the Mets the lead. And of course that home run in game three of the World Series at home to help the Mets win their first ever World Series game at City Field. And that's basically it. Right Pierre, the beginning of 2016, had a couple big hits, got hurt, didn't play again until this weekend. In so many ways, not just for me, for a lot of Mets fans, Wright was my guy on this team. It's going to take a while for someone else to reach that status. Jacob DeGrom could get there, but it's not the same with a pitcher. It just isn't. Wright was the Mets third baseman for a dozen years and could have easily played through 2020 if his back didn't give out on him. There is no doubt his number is getting retired soon. David Wright Day is going to be happening next year or the year after that. They're going to put that number up on the top of the city field up next to Piazza and Seaver and Hodges and uh, Stengel. 
That's going to happen. We also know he's going to be part of this organization for many years to come. Even though we all knew this was coming. We knew it was coming as soon as it was announced in 2015 that the end was near. The fact that it just got here now, it doesn't make it any easier to say goodbye. And that's going to do it for today's show. I want to thank my guests, Matt Musico and Jack Clark, for stopping by to talk some baseball and make NFL picks. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including a look at whether or not Jets head coach Todd Bowles will be on the hot seat soon, be sure to check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes soon by searching for Just and the Suffering in the podcast store. Feel free to leave your feedback and star ratings to help make the show even better. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-O-I-P-S-331. And tweet at me with hashtag rcaptain. He made the end of today's show. I have another good show lined up for you next week as we're going to do an NBA preview with the season tipping off in just under two weeks. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Browns fans. But... This is love. I mean, I can't say anything else. This is love.